So this week is a little bit strange because the person being interviewed is me. It was about time that I shared my own story about when I knew. So I recruited um, a former guest, Wahaj Mahmood Brown, to interview me. And actually, I've become really good friends with Wahaj since I first interviewed him in 2020. So it was really nice to have someone who's a really good friend ask me some really important questions about who I am and how I feel about who I am. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Um, such a great opportunity to to finally be able to speak to you about uh, the the subject of this podcast. When did you know? Uh, because I guess you've been interviewing uh, people from all backgrounds for for quite a while now. Uh, so it's great to have the opportunity to discuss your story. Um, I wanted to start with first of all, can you give me? Uh, an idea why you wanted to do the podcast in the first place. So what sorts of things had you seen? Why did you think this story or this element of people's stories was missing? And how did you come about the idea? I think we hear a lot about how people came out or they share their coming out stories that are often either tragic or funny or quite boring. Um, But there's something quite there's always quite I think a long delay between realizing that you are LGBT plus and then actually coming out and telling people so I was really interested in those moments and also kind of I was I was telling a friend ages ago about when I realized that I was gay um, which Mm. we will come to in when you ask me in a moment but that was kind of it was quite a funny moment so I thought well there must be other people like this and also there's a book called When I Knew years that I read years and years ago um, and I don't think it's in print anymore but it was um, just people sharing their funny stories of the moment they knew so mm-hmm. the one of the stories there were just small quotes with pictures throughout this little book um, one of the, the quotes was I knew I was gay when planning my bar mitzvah I was more excited to meet the party planner than anything else and some <laughs> of stories that I was like you know there's some of these are really funny and um, some of them are really sad, but yeah, so that's kind of where it came from. No, it's it's so interesting because I was uh, because obviously you interviewed me uh, probably about a year ago or, or something like that, um, and I was reflecting on um, the the value of of this podcast and and this sort of unique approach to to the story, um, and I thought you know everyone asks you when you came out and coming out is such a a public uh expression and that's how you're connecting with with other people whereas when you knew is such a personal thing that that would have developed over time um and often that isn't quite reflected in how you you tell people and, and when you come out so first of all could I ask you how do you identify I identify as a gay man. I I would like to be able to embrace the label queer more, I think, but there's mm. still some work I need to do on myself before I can reclaim that word for myself because it feels a little bit more all-encompassing. But for now, mm. I'm a, a gay cis man. Excellent. So um, what does that mean to you, uh, queerness? And, and why do you think you want to explore that? Or, or why do you think that... You think that applies to you potentially? I think 
because it's about not really fitting in one particular box or, or blurred boundaries. I think, and it might be just been my issues with how I've perceived gay men growing up, and this will probably mm. come up later, but um, seeing kind of when I was younger and saw gay men on TV and in films, there was still only one acceptable way to be a gay man. And I do have a real chip on my shoulder about it. And I know I need to, things are better, but it's still a real problem that white, muscly, conventionally attractive men and quite masculine men or the opposite of really, really effeminate in your face campness. And there's nothing wrong with either of those, but it always felt like a binary option. Um, and I kind of, I'm definitely not masculine, but I kind of, I don't know, I feel like I have some femininity, some masculinity, and so I think queer possibly might be a better label for me, if I wanted to give myself a label, um, because I don't neatly fit into a particular box, but mm. it's also still, you know, it was a word that was thrown at me through school in such a negative way, um, mm. and it was in the press, and, you know, that it's still really difficult for me to to embrace it and I didn't realize how much of an issue I had with the word until a few years ago so I work in a university and I was um I had a friend who's uh, passed away last year um who we were working on a project together um and she kept mentioning queer theory and using queer theory and a queer lens and every time she said the word queer my leg kept twitching and I didn't realise it was just a completely subconscious reaction every time she mm. said this word until sort of about half an hour in, she was like, will you stop that? <laughs> like, why? <laughs> why is it every time I say this word? Like, are you really, are you uncomfortable? And and then when I started to think about it, I was like, I was trying to force myself to to be okay with hearing the word queer um, in different settings. And I, I wasn't really ready for that. And I don't think I still am yet because... You know, working in the university, you hear, you know, queer theory all the time. It's a, a theory. Um, yeah. So, and more and more younger LGBT plus people are identifying as queer, which is great, but it's still something I need to do a little bit of work on myself, I think. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that makes sense. So, um, w- would it be fair to say that based on a um, sort of cis normative um, society that we live in, that even as LGBTQ people that have had to spend a lot of time reflecting on our uh, um, on our experiences and and how do we navigate around the cis normative world, nevertheless we somehow are still subject to our upbringings and and have to fight against that to to really reflect on our experiences. Yeah, and I think there's um, we I think. I can't speak for every LGBT plus person, but I think a lot of us mm. carry to some extent some level of internalised homophobia. And and I say mm. that, I only really realised this, that I still have some in me yesterday uh, when my therapist was talking to me about it because I was like, no, I'm fine with being gay. Of course I'm fine. With and then the more I thought about it, I know like, there's still a lot of discomfort um, mm. around, yeah, around certain LGBT things. Um, and yeah, so we, I think it's getting less and less so, but I found a way to be an acceptable gay man. Um, and possibly, you know, 
hid part of who I was because of that. Because oh, I know that if I'm if I dial down the campness a little bit, if I don't paint my nails like I want to, um, then that makes me more acceptable as a gay man, and I'll be taken seriously more because I'm, mm. I I will be able to blend in a little bit more. So yeah, I think yeah. I don't know if that actually answers your question, but um, yeah, I think we, no, it does. we have to kind of perform to whatever society expects of men or women or gay men or gay women to be. And then there's the whole, if you're trans or non-binary or gender gender fluid, where exactly do you fit in that? Yeah, so so that's quite interesting, isn't it? That there is, um, I suppose, a cis-normative pressure from, from the general society. But I guess, uh, building on what you were saying earlier about... Um, what are the the two types of gay men that are portrayed um, in media that even from within the LGBTQ community, we are setting a set of expectations of what it is to be LGBTQ? Yeah, and I think, can any of us think off the top of our head of, um, you know, you'd be able to count on one hand the amount of, LGBT people with a disability that we've seen in the media. When do we see that? That just is something that is not out there. Or um, if we, and it, and again, it could just be me, but I think if I think of um, Pride or gay men on television, and I'm, I'm coming at this from a very gay male perspective, because that's what mm. I can speak to, but I still see mostly muscly um, white guys um, where there's no kind of um, queerness, for want of a better word, about them. Mm. So, you know, we don't see those muscly guys with painted nails or with um, with more effeminate, traditionally, stereotypically effeminate clothing. But we will then see the other binary version of that, which is a really, really camp gay man. And again, there's nothing wrong with those identities, but yeah. they never seem to merge. We still seem to be stuck in this binary. And it's still mm. mostly... Um, white, able-bodied, um, skinny, muscular men, or we will, and even within the gay community, we will, we're very good at putting ourselves and others into boxes as well, so we'll have bears, yeah. wings, um, we'll have otters, and I can't think of any of the top of my head, but we will even put ourselves into boxes. Um, yeah. What if you don't want to be in a box? What if you don't quite fit into one of those, because I'm not hairy enough to be a bear, and I'd like to think I'm not old enough yet, but I think I am. Um, (laughs) I'm not hairy enough to be a bear, but I'm not skinny enough or young enough to be a twink. And where on earth do I fit? So, we, yeah, we do that. Even within our own community, we want to put people into boxes, because in a way it makes us feel Mm. a bit more comfortable, and that's madness. Yeah, so uh, I suppose it's... um... I wonder what you think about the sort of grinderification effect in, in that sense that, you know, um, conversations on, on um, some of these apps often start in a very similar way to, um, 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 as we, we're similar age, right? So maybe you'll get this reference that I used to uh, chat to people on Yahoo chat rooms like back in the day when yeah. they existed. <laughs> and it all sort of started with like ASL and, and things like that. Yes. <laughs> oh good i'm glad you remember uh some of the listeners might not know but um and... that means location for anyone who doesn't know what that means <laughs> and um i suppose um uh, apps like grinder sometimes um i don't know if they encourage it but they certainly facilitate that sort of 
conversation where you you set up your profile and within that you put yourself within categories um, and people sort of ask you further leading questions to put you in further categories before they'll even have a conversation with you at times. Yeah, and I mean, it's um, so on Grindr, for example, as I'm still a user on there, they, you can filter out people who do not fit within your parameters. And they mm. only last year removed race and ethnicity as, a, as a, something that you could filter people. So if you didn't want wow. to speak to a black or brown person, you could just filter them out. And they kept labelling it as well, people have preferences. Well, no, that's just racism. So, you know, I'm saying that to hey, a person who is not white. I'm sure I don't mean to explain that to you. You know what racism is. But they, so you, but you can still do that with all other things, with uh, with height, with uh, body type. Um, mm. Real chip on my shoulder around body types. Um, <laughs> it, yeah, it's still, still absolutely like that. And yet when my profile i you know got some things that may give away certain things i enjoy in my profile information i'm very open and honest but then at the same time some people have called and said all oh, that's kind of slutty to put that on there I'm like okay so it's okay to just hide it and you can filter me out but to actually be honest and open about what i'm looking for and who i am as a person mm. slutty. um yeah and that's another thing i think the gay community is great at slut shaming each other as well we're not looking for love or relationships or in a conventional relationship that can kind of be seen as I've certainly seen it from LGBT people on Grindr on Twitter as kind of letting the side down of like well we're not performing in the same way that heterosexual people are so actually right. well, you shouldn't behave like that because you give us all a bad name well no actually and there was a whole argument around pride and pride still should be a protest and it's great that it's family friendly sometimes, but actually, should it be family friendly? Because it's not just about um, having a nice flag and playing some games and some nice music and some great pop star there. It's about being able to show exactly who you are and being proud of that and not hiding it. But I think, yeah, sometimes the LGBT community can, can be their own worst enemy in that. Yeah, yeah, I, I see what you're saying there because I suppose there is that um, dichotomy between us making our own new traditions and, and finding our voice finally or starting to find it um, but we're still bound by our heteronormative or cisnormative upbringings and perhaps subject to making the same mistakes at times where we're trying to get past some of those patriarchal ideas of of what your sex life should be and how openly you should and shouldn't talk about it. Um, and yet we know that in the LGBTQ community, a lot of people are being very expressive and are pushing those boundaries of, 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 of uh, what cis-normative people might, might think. And so the, there is that sort of duality in, in how we behave sometimes. Mm, yeah, and I think and not all heterosexual people are like, I, I'm, you know, a strong supporter of, obviously, as an LGBT person, same-sex marriage uh, is very important. But there's a lot of heterosexual people that marriage doesn't suit them or a two-person relationship doesn't suit them. And, but, yeah, they don't seem to get the same level of flack <laughs> as, like, an LGBT yeah. person does. And I think, actually, within the community, we, do, we, do, we don't really help ourselves sometimes in bringing each other down. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
So um, how do you think, um, well, for instance, you, um, if you don't mind talking about it, but, but tell me if you, if you don't want to, but you were talking about um, therapy and, and you're exploring some of your identity and, and, and whatnot within therapy. How have you found that in terms of your LGBTQ experience? Have you been able to find a therapist um, that can really help you explore that? Do they understand yeah, your situation? Absolutely. So I've got, I mean, I, I should basically be doing marketing for my therapist because I keep talking about him to everyone. He <laughs> um, really has changed my life. And so I have been, I've had so many different therapists and counsellors for, for, I mean, I think I probably saw my first therapist when I was 17. And I'm now in my early 30s. <laughs> I've seen many therapists and counsellors by that time. And he's the first one I've really stuck with. So I've, it's like I've gone window shopping for counsellors and therapists over 10 plus years because I would try them out for a few sessions. And they, none of those therapists were bad. I never had a bad experience. Um, mm. I know people do have bad experiences, but I've not had a bad experience. But they didn't click for me and they didn't work for me. And all of them, bar one, who, um, then that was for a, a couple therapy session, but all bar one were women. And I always thought I would be more comfortable with a female therapist. Mm. Um, but now reflecting back, they were all quite mumsy. And I, I don't mean that in a derogatory way at all. But <laughs> they, they were really motherly and motherlike and so I couldn't be honest about a lot of LGBT specific issues or about mm -hmm. issues that I was I was facing as a gay man um and so I I can't remember what prompted me to have another go at therapy and I thought okay you know what I'm going to try an LGBT specialist um mm -hmm. and so I went through the British Association of Council and Psychotherapists, their website, they have a find a therapist option. And there was a couple, um, LGBT specific ones, and and I, I tried him and it's just been the perfect fit because he is a gay man, he's very open about that, he understands LGBT issues, he's also done specialist training in LGBT issues, so as well as a lived his training. And he's the first therapist I've been able to be 100% honest with, which is madness that 10 years of therapy and I could never quite tell my counsellor or my therapist exactly what I was feeling or exactly what I've been doing because I felt so much shame attached mm. to certain things related to my, my sexuality. Um, whereas with him, I don't have to do that. And we've got really honest, um, relationship and that's been really good it's been challenging sometimes but I've um, I've stuck with it and but yeah it's been it's been amazing so I don't know I've mentioned it to a few other friends um, and they've all been like oh, oh no I mean he might judge me because he's a gay man and that that was an absolute real fear of mine because I have mm. this impression I don't think completely misplaced um, that gay men can be judgmental sometimes, but I don't think they're any more judgmental than any other part of society. It just, mm. for some reason, it felt worse to me as, a, as, an, as another gay man. Um, but he doesn't judge, or if he does, he's never let on. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just, it's been the best counselling relationship I've had. And actually, I'm very 
I've, I've been to every session and um, I'm I'm okay with it being kind of quite a long process. Like I've resolved quite a few things in the last 12 months, but it's been over a year I've been with him now and I'm okay that it's going to be a long process because I've got a lifetime of shame and fear and anxiety to try and undo and understand. So it's going to take time and I'm okay with that. And I think that was part of the problem before is I was wanting quick fixes. And again, they were okay for that time when I was with employees who only paid for six sessions. It was very focused, you know, get me back to work. But this is quite nice knowing I've got a long time and that's okay. Um, And I've got a therapist who really understands me and I can be honest with. So, yeah, it's, it's been amazing. Oh, that's so lovely to hear. That's such a positive experience. Um, just to, so, um, I guess you said that you've, you've been in, uh, therapy for, for quite a few years with, with different people. Um, could I explore with you where, where some of that, um, shame that you, you talked about comes from? Could you describe what your home life was like growing up, um, in your early years, sort of your, your family structure and, not just what life was like at home, but outside, uh, perhaps in school and, uh, and other situations. What was that like for you? Where to begin? I mean, my, <laughs> you know, my parents are still together. I grew up in the Midlands, um, kind of a standard family, like two parents and two children and a dog. <laughs> it's kind of fairly standard. Um, I think one thing that had struck me uh, so I, I grew up in Leicester, which is a really diverse city. Um, but one thing that has struck me whilst I was surrounded by religious and racial diversity, I don't know the word racial, but racial diversity is one of a better word. <laughs> um, I never really, there wasn't really much diversity in terms of uh, sexual orientation or gender identity. I've only really recognised that, that as I've got older. So I never saw other people who were LGBT plus, um, you know, no family members. I think I'm the only LGBT person in my family when I can't be, but like, <laughs> what else has come out? <laughs> um, so, yeah, um, but fairly kind of, I mean, home life was, was relatively happy. Um, there were sort of issues that um, are not really related to sexual orientation, but more around body image and that's turned out to be a bigger thing around my therapy that I've got kind of a bigger issue with rather than than um, my sexual orientation but but the difference for me was whilst home was quite a safe happy place school was not school was the worst place to be and you know since like my early years in primary school I always knew I was different and I didn't quite fit in I always wanted to play with the girls and not with the boys like I found boys really scary (laughs) (laughs) I found boys really scary and I didn't want to do sports with them I didn't I wanted to be friends with all the girls and wanted to do what the girls did um and I mean and so much so that I remember one night I and, you know, I paint my nails sometimes now because there's certain, like, freedom about it. But I remember one time when I was younger, I painted my nails with a felt-tip pen at night and fell asleep. Ooh. And so they were bright pink in the morning. 
and I was told off quite a lot by my my by my parents for doing that. Um, but I just wanted to be like the girls, and so for a long time, I just thought that I should have been a girl. And I know a lot of trans people have that experience, and it's a very very different experience of wanting of thinking they should be a girl because it's not yeah. thinking they should be a girl; they are they are female or they are male. So it's a very different experience to that. It's it's because I didn't see that you could be anything other than heterosexual. I just assumed that something was wrong. Um, so yeah, and then as I got older, sort of going through school, other people started to notice that I was different. I think when you're younger, kids just accept kids accept each other for how they are then as you start to get older they start to notice oh they're different they behave differently they yeah. different. they and anything that makes you different just makes you a target and I, I just had horrendous but I hated I got to a point where I, you know I used to love going to school really and um, even if I felt weird and I didn't have many friends to begin with at school because I struggled to make friends um but then I got to the point where I just did not want to go to school. I hated it. And, mm. you know, it was, it got, so in Leicester, you go to a primary school, a middle school, and then a college or high school, and then another college for A-levels. So you go to many, many different schools compared to other parts of the country. Um, and I, yeah, I am, um, I think it was when I went to middle school that it got particularly bad. Um, so I had stuff, you know, stones and food thrown at me every day, um, threatened with a knife by one guy. One guy tried to push me off a fire escape, like, on a, you know, four-storey building. It was really, really bad. But at the mm. same time, you know, they were calling me queer, they were calling me puff, they were calling me all those slurs. Um, and that was big, that was so much more shameful. So because it was shameful that they were calling me gay, I mm. couldn't tell my parents about it. So, and I think this is something that a lot of young LGBT people find themselves in because you're ashamed anyway that you're being bullied, but then you're also being told that you're gay and there's a part of you that thinks, well, I am different. What is this? And you're trying to work out what or who you are. And so of course you don't tell your parents. So nothing ever happens. So it just gets worse and worse and worse. Um, mm. So, and then that, that did make things harder at home. You know, like I think the worst thing for me was doing PE because the teacher wasn't around when you were in the changing rooms and so they could do anything and there was no one to stop them. And yeah. I was very, very alone. And I would scream and cry at my parents to give me a note to get out of PE. Mm. And they wouldn't because why would they just give me a note? They were doing the responsible parenting thing of making sure I got my exercise. Yeah. Is, you know there's a whole load of bollocks around how PE is just I think quite damaging to young people if done badly and then desegregated and all that shit but anyway I agree so, <laughs> it's, it's so damaging anyway um so so I yeah so that really strained things at home because I couldn't tell them why because I didn't want to say I'm being bullied because, <laughs> because I think I might be gay or so yeah. yeah so that then made things a bit harder at home Bless you, that, that sounds like such an awful experience. And, you know, although talking about it, I think it's so important. And thank you for being so open about such traumatic experiences that are, that are so personal to you. And, and you know, it, it, it takes a lot to talk about 
things like that. But it's so valuable to a lot of other LGBTQ people or, or even beyond our community to, to other people that are othered um, out of society to know that, you know, for, for a lot of us growing up, we, uh, I don't know about you, but we thought we were the only ones subject to it in the whole world. You know, we, we, we weren't able to build those connections to find other LGBTQ people to see how they're experiencing it and they're being treated in the same way or if they even exist in the first place to, to some extent. Um, so I think it's so valuable to, to hear those experiences because actually there's, there's so much commonality in, in how people get treated. Um, on, on that note, so, so you were experiencing a lot of this behavior towards you. When, when did you come out eventually? Uh, so I came out when I, well, sort of, I mean, obviously the caveat that everyone, that every LGBT person knows is we come out all the time and we do, but um, yeah. the first couple of times um, was, uh, so when I was about 13 um, and I told, it was my best friend at the time, told her, um, she kept it a secret. And then I told another friend of ours, she did not keep it a secret and told the entire school, um, which, you know, <laughs> in, which wasn't the right thing to do. I do not condone that behaviour, but mm. it did save me having to tell people. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and then people called me gay because you're like, yes. Um, so, so that was that. And so I was about 13. And then I didn't tell my parents till I was... 16 um and actually called my godmother first and she helped me tell my parents um in fact I didn't tell my dad he just asked me eventually um when so I, I moved out I left home when I was 16 um and moved in with uh, a boy which was a, a big mistake in my life um, <laughs> and my dad didn't really ask me and my dad my dad eventually asked me when he came to our place and saw there was only one bed and he was great you know he just hugged me and was like it makes no difference still love you and that was that so actually telling my parents was fine I did realize this morning when I was thinking about this story I've never told my brother like I mean he's four years old <laughs> he came to my wedding I was married to a man so you know he obviously knows but <laughs> I've never told him and it and that's really odd and then you know over time I mean, they were the two big coming outs of, you know, my, my friends and my family. And then over time, mm. my grandparents, uh, my grandmother and my, my nan, they were both so unbothered by it. They just were like, okay, as long as you're happy, which was not what I was expecting. You know, they were both born in the 20s and 30s or whenever they were born. Um, yeah. So, so, yeah, and then obviously you just, you come out all the time. <laughs> Um, but those, yeah, they were the big ones anyway. Mm, mm. Do you, um, I wonder what you, you think about um, the way people react um, to you coming out because often there's the people that are clearly uncomfortable by it in some way and they will sometimes be vocal or, or keep it to themselves, but you, know, you can tell. Or ones that seem completely unbothered. But I guess 
you've had to do so much internal reflection and it takes so much courage sometimes to to come out to people even uh, like you were saying that we have to come out every day um the amount of effort that you put in and the mental energy to come out how how does it feel when people don't match that energy um because clearly it's taken so much to to tell them and if they're unbothered it kind of feels like you're the one that made a big deal out of it in the first place I don't know you know I don't know actually I've never thought about that I find I deliver training at work and we talk about LGBT colleagues you know if they come out here and have to respond respectfully and you know it's not making a big deal but recognizing that actually that is a big thing that they've shared it with you so mm. I don't know I mean particularly with my grandparents I was so worried about their reaction that for them to be and I say unbothered but in the nicest possible way like they were well if you're happy that's fine and then um, my my nan has, has passed away I when I when I got engaged to my ex-husband she was so excited to see the engagement ring and to come to the wedding and so that was just amazing like she was in her eight, late 80s by then so she was you know really getting on um so yeah I've, I've never really thought about that I think there is I'd rather, though, I'd rather anyone be unbothered than be hostile and be rude. Yeah, <laughs> so, of course. you know, I don't know. I don't know whether it is any any different to them just being overly, because there's also that you don't, you kind of don't want too big a fuss made of it because then it becomes a big spectacle. But equally, mm. you want a little bit of recognition of actually this has been really tough to come out and so yeah. yeah I've never thought about that that doesn't really answer your question but I've never thought about it. no 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 I think it does yeah I think you've described it quite well especially with with your job and 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 certainly in practice um how we're getting people to be okay with it but also recognize how much work that's that's taken to say it in the first place uh I guess like like you sharing your experiences of some of those awful things that happened to you in your childhood um you have to recognize how important it was for you to be able to say that and, and what that takes. So we, we, we talked about a lot of the external views on you and the way people were treating you and what they seemed to see in you. How was that like for you? So like, when, when did you know? Was it a sort of um, a eureka moment one day or... Um, did it sort of appear over time? What, what was that journey like for you? So I I think, you know, I said earlier, I always knew I was different. And, mm. and, and I looked at the day just before I joined this call. The moment I knew, that, and I can pinpoint it exactly, that I knew that I was gay or that I liked boys and that that was mm. a normal thing, was in 1999. <laughs> <laughs> when there was a gay kiss in Emmerdale and I can still picture it and um I so it was um oh Gavin and Jason and I think Gavin was engaged to Bernice who was the landlady of the pub in Emmerdale village and um <laughs> they they kissed and they were discovered kissing and I remember watching it and you know, I was quite young, so I would have been about 10 or 11-ish, mm. I think. And um, there was a little feeling in my pants when I saw these two boys <laughs> kiss. 
And I was like, oh, <laughs> and it was just like a light bulb. It was like, suddenly, oh, oh, men can kiss each other. That's okay. And I like the look of that. And, um, and so that was the moment that I knew that, that I was gay. Um, mm. Or at least like boys, you know, gay, not not so much. So that's when I knew that I liked boys. And then... Yeah. Um, can I just ask... Um, uh, sorry to interrupt. Um, can I just ask, on on the show, how was that dealt with by the other um, characters? It, uh, well, not... <laughs> Not great, and um, because mm. Gavin was married or he was getting married, and Bernice is the one who saw him, so there was an, mm. an immediate negative reaction, um, which you know, and actually, and I think about, um, I think about, so as a family, we watched a lot of television, and I still watch probably too much, but I've cut back a little bit, <laughs> but especially soap operas, like we love soap operas, and my dad really loves Emmerdale. He watched, he's never missed an episode, and, and actually my mum used to have to record it for him because he worked quite long hours. He didn't have much mm. money, so he worked a lot. Um, and so I remember this one being on cassette tape and like on VCR, and when no one was in, I would just keep replaying that kiss. Um, <laughs> it's not so much the fallout, but anyway. Yeah. But in the press, in the lead, you know, around the time, mm. there were loads of stories about oh, you know, should our children see this? And and it was also around the same time that Queer as Folk came out on television. So oh, yeah, yeah. TV in my room, so I could watch that. No one knew I was watching it, but, you know, very late at night. On, I couldn't hear it. I had it so quiet because I didn't want anyone to know. But this was all around the same year or two of this kiss. There seems to be a lot of gays in the media. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean... The characters never did not react well, but then at the same time, in Queer as Folk, these were other people, who, other boys who liked boys, and they were having a great time, and they were loving their life. And then also, you know, it might be a year later, when Grace came out, and that, so that was on television, and but that used to be on on Friday nights. And I would watch it on the Friday night and be like, I'm gay, this makes sense, and be really okay with it by the Saturday morning, be like, but I'm never going to tell anyone. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. And and the press was still, you know, not you know, I went to school during section 28 when mm. it was illegal to talk about LGBT issues. And the press was still awful about gay people, about LGBT plus people. The same mm. way that they are now about trans people or non-binary people, it's it's gone full circle in a horrible way. Um, yeah. So yeah, so I mean, the characters on, on Emmerdale didn't react very well, um, and I do remember. And then you know, I think about the different soap operas we watched, and I remember Coronation Street's first gay kiss. I feel like it was around Christmas time. I was at my aunt's house. I want to say it was Boxing Day, but I can't remember. Um, <laughs> and. By then, that must have been a year or so later, I kind of accepted who I was um, mm. and then surely came out to friends and stuff. So, so in that year, um, before you came out, so when you knew um, that kiss on Everdale to, to when you came out to your friend, um, do you remember what that journey was like for you from the seed being sowed in your head and something clicking to how did you explore that to to solidify that to see if that was definitely a thing and 
I mean, I think, um, and this is possibly is where that kind of binary being a masculine and it's a podcast so you can't see the inverted commas normal <laughs> guy who likes guys or being a yeah. really camp guy because if you think of Will and Grace and how that represented I mean it was groundbreaking and that show helped me so much mm. but it still showed gay men as being really camp or being able to blend in it, you know it, there was yeah. and I think that has impacted me a lot more than I realized um mm. because I didn't want to be and I remember after sort of I then came out of school and people would call me Jack, like Jack from Will and Grace. And I didn't want to be that because he was the camp one and I didn't want mm. to be because that was seen as someone who wasn't taken seriously, someone who was a joke, who was an embarrassment. And all of that stuff is probably stuff I projected onto that character. Mm. But I equally think that he was often played for laughs. And you can see in the remake um, like that he's a lot, not not toned down but he's not played for laughs anymore that him being can is totally fine and that's just part of who he is whereas I think in the earlier seasons it was always played for jokes mm. um so I think that there was a lot of me trying to not be like that and trying to move away from being like that and I remember in school um I was in the library during a lesson. I probably shouldn't have been. I don't know why I was in there. But there was one girl who'd been sent out of her classroom and sent to the library as a punishment. I love that. That's a real good message sent to kids. <laughs> Go read books as a punishment. Um, but she had been sent there as like part of her detention. And um, she was quite a tough girl. But she was always nice to me, which I don't know why, but she was. But I remember her that afternoon trying to teach me to walk more like a boy and to be more... Man, not manly at the time, but more like a boy, and mm. um, more masculine. And uh, because I was so definitely didn't want to be like Jack from Will and Grace. Now yeah. I'm, I'm quite comfortable with being a big camp and having camp element. You know, I'm, I'm quite comfortable with that. But there's still a certain level of, of shame that I'm kind of having to overcome and to learn to not hide. And then, you know, that coupled with not, again, the only... Will and Jack, both skinny, conventionally attractive, um, in high-powered jobs. Mm. <laughs> well, not so much Jack, but Will in a high-powered yeah. job. Um, and successful, generally. And so that set me up with kind of, I guess, unrealistic expectations of what I could expect from my life. Um, but also yeah. immediately made me feel like I didn't fit in because I wasn't um, skinny or muscly. I didn't like sports. Um, mm. And so, yeah, like as, as much good as it did, the TV around that time also probably didn't help matters. Um, yeah. and, and then, you know, I spent a lot of time on MSN Messenger, on the, <laughs> the chat rooms, um, and not, you know, at like 12 to 13 years of it. Well, I was probably on them around that age, but then going, you know, through to my teenage years, would spend a lot of time speaking to people online because it's the only place that I could find people yeah. who were like me um, and that that helped to sort of give me a sense of who I was who I am in the world um you know that story you were saying about um being made to walk like a like a man um I don't know if I discussed this with you on our podcast but it's so strange hearing that experience because my sister did exactly the same thing to me um she used to 
Um, this was even before I came out. And just sort of walking from, from the kitchen to the living room, she would sort of stop me in my tracks and sort of teach me how to walk like a man. I was being taught by a woman how to talk like a man. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and I always thought that was such a weird, unique experience that only I went through. So as, as awful as it is, it's so wonderful, this, this podcast, to be able to share these experiences. Um, actually, so many of these things happen to so many of us. And yeah, like for some of us, we might have tried to teach ourselves and then others, yeah, we have people literally telling us how we should be. Um, yeah, I think, yeah. yeah, I think that's probably quite a universal thing if we all spoke about it a bit more. Yeah, so moving on from um, when you then came out sort of uh, over the next few years, um, your, um, I don't want to get your job title right, but um, <laughs> you, you, you deal with uh, diversity and inclusion, is that right? Yes. <laughs> uh, thank you, oh good. <laughs> um, how, what do you think you've been able to bring to that role from your unique experiences um, and the role itself do you think that's helped you in defining your identity with a bit more clarity that it has it been less othering for you or, or has it helped you it's taught me a lot I think it's taught me that my experiences were not um, I was not the only one to experience things like that and actually a lot of those issues that LGBT people faced when I was growing up are still not gone. They are better, but they are still not gone. And actually, they might be better for LGB people, or at least LNG people, but for non-binary, for trans, and for bi people, there's a lot of bi erasure. Um, those issues are just as bad, if not worse. So yeah, and actually, what kind of... So I ended up in this job kind of by accident. I am... Um, I, I started my degree, so I started my degree quite late. I started when I was 23. Um, so I moved out of home when I was uh, about 16 um, because I didn't feel that I could, well, you know, I ended up being in an incredibly abusive relationship when I, when I left home, but I, I felt I couldn't be myself at home. And, you know, this guy told me that, he was the only person that I could ever have and all that and so I kind of didn't I was out of education for quite a while and and you know at one point I still did my A-levels at one point I was working two jobs and doing my A-levels and living alone and you know it's tough but I did it mm. and then took a break and worked in retail for many years as a manager and then eventually went to university and I did a degree in education studies so it's not teacher training it's the history, philosophy, politics of education. And is, you know, it's, everyone should do that degree. It's amazing. It's the best thing we've ever done. <laughs> um, but I did that because I, and partly accidentally, I thought I wanted to be a teacher, but I didn't have the high enough grades to go into the teacher programme. But this also seemed kind of interesting. So I thought, oh, I'll give it a go. And it was the best thing I've ever done because it helped to, it gave me the tools to research and to really interrogate my experiences and the experiences of other people um, in education, mm. um, particularly from an LGBT plus lens. And actually, this is where I really found my voice, I think, because in the first year, there was a module called Diversity in Education, and it talked about race. 
and disability and all these things, but it did not talk about homophobia, biophobia, transphobia in education, despite the fact that Section 28 was a very recent law that had only just been repealed you know, 10 plus years earlier. Mm. So I, I went to the programme staff and just told them they need to change it. And, and they did. They put modules in to cover it and then invited me back to teach mm. on that programme. And so and I, I taught by sharing my personal experience. So I shared that I was bullied, you know, had stuff thrown at me, threatened with a knife through school. And actually the knock on impact that had on me forming who I who I was and ended up in a really abusive relationship because I had been shamed and made to feel so bad that I didn't think I deserved anyone else. And, you know, and this, and I, you know, I was standing in a lecture theatre talking about how um, this guy, when I was 17, 16, 17, 18, he would hit me, lock me in the house, took my money away, really incredibly abusive. But mm. I didn't do anything about it because I probably wouldn't have been taken seriously as an LGBT plus person. Um, yeah. But equally because I thought I deserved it, because that was the message I had all through education and all through school. Mm. And so it was madness to me that the, the education studies didn't include it, but the staff were incredible and said, no, you're absolutely right. This should be on there. And they did it straight away. And that's kind of how I started. And then I did my master's in education and then were continually looked at. The outcomes for LGBT plus people are still lower compared mm. to the heterosexual and cisgender population, we still have higher rates of suicide and mental health and substance abuse. We still um, have high rates of risky behaviours, risky sexual behaviours, poor experiences in the NHS, in healthcare, um, in sexual health services. So all this stuff, and it's still not getting any better. Well, it's got a little bit better, but it's nowhere near where it should be. So yeah, that's kind of led me into this job. And I really, I love that I am, um, making a difference sometimes it feels very small sometimes it feels big um for for low for people on however they're struggling to access university whether it's working whether it's through study so yeah and that, that's kind of how it started so I sort of fell into it and I realized how important it is to share your personal experiences and share your story part of mm. you know why this podcast came about I guess as well um so I don't go into you know board meetings and executive group meetings stand there and just give them my life story obviously not but by <laughs> getting that out there at least some students have heard it and there would have been some students in that classroom who could have felt the same and realized that no actually they are worth more mm. than what society might have told them and then that gives me the push to kind of carry on and do bigger projects that will impact more people um so yeah it's there's something really powerful about sharing stories and you know everyone loves well not everyone society loves again putting people into boxes and they love mm. numbers and data well we can look at statistics and numbers and percentages and that doesn't it doesn't really show you anything it doesn't show you the real lived experiences and that's one thing that i've definitely learned that mm. i can give people statistics mm. but when you actually share the quotes and the spoken stories from those students or staff members or just members of the community that's when it has an impact because all of a yeah. sudden those numbers are real and we seem to have forgotten the power in storytelling and that's I try and weave that bit into like the EDI work that I do um, as much as I can and when it's appropriate. Do you think you've you've managed to tell uh, get those people to tell their stories about when they knew 
And since you've been doing this podcast and speaking to so many people, and now actually talking about your your own story as well, has that helped you in any way? And 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 has it illuminated anything for you when you've looked at similarities or differences in people's experiences? Yeah, there's it's helped. I think with hearing so many similarities. Um, so like Dr. Sammy Lee, he talks about um, meeting friends online, and actually he he was realizing who he was when the internet was still quite new and well it was becoming more used and actually how important those online spaces were many things you know I think very dangerous about them but they were yeah so that's that's one that definitely comes to mind and mm. also Sarah Aston from the previous episode she talked about um like her experiences of school and that was during section 28 she's a little bit older than me I hope she won't mind me saying that on here it's a little bit older not too much older but she, so she experienced Section 28 in its full effect, but she had teachers who effectively broke the law to support her. Um, oh, wow. And, and you know, and I had that. There were some teachers when I, some that I could trust and tell, and oh, they wow. really supported me and they didn't tell my parents exactly what the nature of things were. And so there were teachers who absolutely broke the law and could have lost their jobs, but they supported. So, but then there was also teachers who happily turned a blind eye or encouraged it. So yeah hearing about all those experiences it made me it's made me feel a little less alone which is really important I think one thing that kind of has what well, has come across through all of them is as LGBT people we are incredibly resourceful we are incredibly resilient and we probably push ourselves too much mm. and I think there's this and this definitely came up with uh, Yendrick from Eurovision like he'd not done well at Eurovision that year and there's a little bit now I think maybe I interviewed him too soon after so I feel a little bit guilty about that because he was so emotional about not doing very well yeah just yeah. listening to him and the amount of pressure he put on himself was he was more vocal and obvious with with yeah the the perfectionism that he had I think that's the same with so many LGBT plus people because we still feel like we have something to prove we still mm. feel like we need to prove we deserve to sit at this table and that we deserve to be in this meeting and tell people why they're doing things wrong. I think, and that's not just LGBT people, like, that's probably the same for most minorities. I can only say it from an LGBT perspective, but I think, yeah, that's, we still feel we need to do that, which is why we have high rates of mental health issues and substance abuse and um, why we are needing therapy and counselling and, um, that seems to be the thread through all of them but whilst all there might have been some shared experiences across some of them whilst there might be some really unique experiences in how people came out and how they realized who they were mm. one of the biggest threads that goes across all of them is just still the level of pressure we put on ourselves to try and overcome the shame that's been heaped on us and to to prove that we're worthy whether it's to ourselves or to society that that's a really interesting point and and sort of moving on from that then, you know, hearing everyone's stories of when when they knew and a lot of the work that you've been doing and, and as you've grown older, is there anything that you would say to your younger self, um, either at the time where you were receiving all that abuse or, or 
how you could have processed once you knew or how you could have come out? What, what are the lessons that you wish you could take from now that you know that you could impart onto to the young Ariel? Um, you know, and you would think that I prepared for this because if I ask this question of everyone, I really <laughs> try to not prepare for this. Um, listen to your gut, which sounds like such an obvious thing, but actually the times that things have either gone wrong for me or that I've been really unhappy or when I've not listened to myself and actually I've listened to other voices, whether it's society, whether it's parents, bullies, abusers. If I just listen to myself, then it would be fine. And so I think that is what I would want to go back. And so that's it. That's my story. And that's what brought me to do this podcast. Thank you to Wahaj for interviewing me and I hope you enjoyed the episode. This is going to be the last one for a while. As you've probably noticed over the last few weeks, it's been hard to sustain a weekly output on the podcast. So that's the end of season two. I'm going to take a little bit of a break while I find some new guests and start to work out a better way to get episodes out to you more regularly. A huge thank you to Richard Abrahams for my theme music. And don't forget to follow me at WDYKpod on Instagram and Twitter or email me on WDYKpod at gmail.com with questions, comments or to volunteer yourself for an interview. And also one final plea to please like, subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. It's really important that we keep sharing these important conversations. So until next time.